the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. You can reach us on the Internet, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, am860theanswer.com. That is am860theanswer.com. I think I got it right that time. Perfect. All right. Also, we're an iHeart station, so you can pick up the iHeart app on your smartphone. You can hear me anywhere as long as you have your smartphone. You can hear me anywhere in the world. All you have to do is go to our website, 860amtheanswer.com, and click Listen Live, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Sunday, and you got me. And remember, we are the station, and I am the host who helped carry Florida for Trump. Yahoo! And even the station manager said, Dr. Bill, you carried Pinellas County, which is a big deal and a, a nice compliment coming from her. If you're listening, Barb, thank you. Well, we've got a big personality, whether you like him or not. Castro has died, and so we need to take a look at this guy and see what his legacy is. Now, you know, over the centuries over the millennia people have always tended to honor and worship the dead put the dead in a a category of something special and uh, i think in a sense families would overlook the bad and try and focus on the good not i think that's human nature that we forget the pain and the suffering and uh, remember the good things that happen most of us otherwise it's tough to get through life but i think that the the mores and the values and the attitudes are changing now that we're a more globalized system and we have the ability to interact socially and uh, financially, news-wise, with people from all over the world. And we're taking a, a different look, a new look at a lot of our old morals and values, some of which we should keep for sure, and some of which we should perhaps look at and balance a little bit. You know, we don't want to go to the wake and say to the family, oh, you know, he was a real yahoo, and I'm glad he's gone. We don't do that. We go to the wake and we say, you know, he took good care of you guys, and you've got a nice house, and he was a good provider, and the kids made it through high school or college or whatever level is appropriate for that setting. And we don't do it because we 
honor or respect the person who has died. We do it because we want to show support for the family. And so do we owe the dead respect, even if they don't deserve it? This goes back to antiquity. The Romans said, De mortis nil nisi bonum. Of the dead, say nothing but good. That goes all the way back to the Romans, and I'm sure back to the Greeks, and probably back to prehistoric ages. But why should we not speak of somebody who has died as we would of somebody who's alive, somebody that we would discuss at the lunch table or at the dinner table that we would say, oh, yeah, I ran into so-and-so, and you know what? I'm, I'm not sure which way this guy's going, or I'm not sure where her head is at, and so some criticism opens up, and some will defend, and some will detract, and we tend not to do that, but I think that particularly when we're dealing with a world leader like Castro, we have to take a look at him honestly and see what the good is and what the bad is, so we can decide whether or not his fashion of ruling and his style and his ideology has any relevance or meaning to us and whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Now, most Americans would say it was not a good thing and that the Cubans could have done a lot better by just riding out the capitalist wave and waiting for time and technology and the political arena and the socioeconomics of a changing world benefited them. And instead, they had a very up-and-down economic and social existence for the past 50, 60 years. I think he came into power in 59. In fact, I know he did because, you know what, I remember now, I was sitting in David Van Humbert's den watching TV. Everybody was out shooting baskets, and here I am at, what, age 10, and I'm sitting there, and I watched Castro ride into Cuba, into Havana, Cuba. Uh, victorious, having kicked out the dictator Batista. And I was struck by that, and I still remember it. I remember the magnanimity of that world event and the impact it had on me at that time. And it certainly has had an impact not only on Americans but on the world, and we see him in not so good of a light. But again, we're a democracy, and we still have freedom of speech. By the way, did you hear that Merkel, the head of the German government, she wants to limit freedom of speech and make it so that you can't have certain hate speech on the Internet in Germany. Of course, all of the EU would want to do that because she would want to do that if it could get through their legislative body. And I'm not sure that that's such a good thing. I think Hitler started off like that, although if someone has any knowledge of that and can correct me on that, let me know. So Fidel Castro died a couple of days ago, 25th of November. What is this, the 27th? Yeah, I think so. So that's two, two days ago. And he was born in 1926. He was born to a wealthy Spanish uh, Cuban farmer. His father had emigrated from Spain to Cuba. And he adopted a leftist and anti-imperialist and largely an anti-U.S. policy while studying law at the University of Havana. I don't think he was the greatest student. Uh, he was more interested in organizing protests and revolutions. And he even attempted a coup in 1953 by 
attacking uh, a military barracks that was part of the Batista's military government. And they were defeated, he and his gang, and he spent a couple of years in prison, was finally let out, having been considered not a threat anymore. So he continued on his quest of ridding Cuba of the dictatorship and of the American influence and of the mafia, which he saw as largely a capitalist invention. And he wanted to introduce central economic planning, planning and expand health care and uh, aid the homeless, build homes, get control of the press, suppress those who d disagreed with him. And it took him a while. It took him another several years, from 53 to 59. They re-began the warfare, the guerrilla warfare, the revolution, shortly after he was released from prison, and they ended up in Mexico, he and Che Guevara and some of his associates, with a couple of hundred guys, and they formed their first, how shall I say, well-organized guerrilla outfit, and they came back to Cuba in a rickety old boat and landed and lost some of their men, uh, got run out of the cities and went up into the mountains in Cuba. And there are some nice, high, heavily jungled mountains that they hid in. And they would attack outposts and do various little sorties here and there to harass the Batista government. And finally, Batista sent troops into this jungle area to go after them, and they had never encountered guerrilla warfare before. And so Castro, who had been perfecting his guerrilla tactics, was able to easily push them back. And over time, he gained more and more support from the, from the poor, from the intellectuals, from the university-based population, young people, of course. And he finally was able to take over Cuba and oust the dictatorship. And gradually, over a number of years, he pushed the United States completely out. Uh, he would wait for some event to happen, and then he would nationalize American interests, such as the oil industry or the sugar industry, which had large holdings in, in Cuba prior to Castro. And he also formed alliances with other socialist and communist leaders in the Latin world. And by doing this, he was able to actually set up a government that, for better or for worse, ruled until the present day. And his imprisonment did nothing but to make him a martyr and more popular to the underclass. He was married early on to Myrta, his wife, who had a child, Fidelito, Fidelito, little Fidel. But his wife, after he had been thrown in prison, actually took a government job, which infuriated Castro. And apparently he had a very volatile temper and would throw fits and make rash decisions and then refuse to back down from them. And so he and his first wife split, and he had been a womanizer for all of his life anyway, and apparently that continued on until he was too old to do this anymore. And I think he's had a few other children. 
His sister, by the way, had fled to Florida shortly after the revolution and has been a staunch critic of both her brother and of the communist regime in Cuba, as have many Cuban-Americans. And I have known a whole lot of Cuban-Americans over the years, especially living here in Florida, doctors, lawyers. I've seen patients in the hospital that were part of the Muriel boat lift, and we'll talk about that a little bit later if anybody remembers that. So he took over, and he ended up with a provisional government starting in 1959, and he was immediately criticized for killing dissidents, killing those people he considered opposed to his regime or who were trying to influence the population in a direction other than he wanted. And he claimed that the Batista government during the revolution had killed thousands of Cubans, and Castro estimated the toll at 20,000, although more recent estimates place it at one to 4,000. And you say, well, a death is a death. I'm, I'm not of that persuasion. The world is not black and white. It's shades of gray. And there's a big difference between a government that's fighting for its existence to kill 1,000 or two or 3,000 people, and, and, and these are probably largely military people, by the way, and a government that is killing people that disagree with it. Now, there's a big difference there for me, and there's a big difference between someone like Hitler and Mao, who killed millions. I think Mao probably holds the record. Tens of millions. And Stalin, tens of millions. Hitler, 10 to 20 million. And trying to compare them to somebody like Trump or Reagan, who killed nobody, really. I mean, they didn't go out and, and uh, indiscriminately pluck up their opponents and their critics and haul them off and have them killed. And I don't think Trump's going to do that anyway. You know, we don't work that way. That's not the way we have been raised. That's not our, our national ethos. That's not the way we work. So at any rate, we know that Castro killed thousands of people and imprisoned thousands of people as well. And you can say, well, he needed to consolidate his power, and a lot of countries have done that after revolutions. We didn't. We didn't after we revolted and broke away from England. We did not do that. And Washington was adamant that we would not do that. He was adamant that we would not commit war crimes, even though he threatened to execute British officers if he heard of any war crimes by the British against the colonial revolutionaries, but he never did do anything. And the one general that he fired and court-martialed on the battlefield at Monmouth, General Lee, a predecessor of, um, I think, the great-grandfather of Robert E. Lee, he actually ended up pardoning him. So that's not the way we do business. And that's not the way that our morals and values tell us to act and behave. And of course, Castro proclaimed himself an atheist, although he was raised Catholic. And he eventually softened his stance in the 90s with the 
breakup of the Soviet Union and the return of capitalism and freedom of speech, freedom of movement and freedom of trade in the Eastern Bloc and in many of the communist countries around the world. He felt the pressure to be more magnanimous and to adapt to the changing times, if you will. And he loosened up his hold on religion and Catholicism and Santeria, came back in strength in, in Cuba. And so he had to change over time, as many, many great leaders do, in the wake of, and in many countries, all of us, in the wake of new events. But on the positive side, he came in and he emphasized social projects to improve Cuba's standard of living. Most people were living in poverty. Unfortunately, this was to the detriment of economic development. And you can argue that had Cuba been allowed to evolve in a free market, that it would have achieved all of that and more. And I would not debate you on that. And there have been economists who have studied the Soviet Union, Russia, before the 1917 revolution, and the direction it was taking. And remember that most Russians were slaves until the 1860s. They were freed at the same time that the United States slaves won their freedom. And it wasn't until 1917 that those freed slaves had any meaningful input into the running and structure of the government. And, of course, they were largely uneducated, as were the poor in, in Cuba. So they're not going to know or understand the fine points of economics. They just know that they're not, they're not making it. Their kids are dying in infancy. They're starving to death. They're freezing in, in Russia in the winters. And all this tends to turn one's head towards simpler solutions like let's take over the wealthy <laughs> let's take what they have and make it ours and, and I don't have a problem with sharing wealth that's that's not it it's to give it indiscriminately or to take it indiscriminately and not know what to do with it once you have it that's the problem but to his to his good he did build homes he did increase health care he did implement immunizations and he did reduce infant mortality and he did lengthen the average age in, of the Cubans in the 40 or 50 years that he was there. Now could all of this have been done without the dictatorial communist regime that he implemented? Probably so. And we also have to remember that immunizations by and large, really didn't come into full effect until the 1950s and 60s. Yes, we had smallpox and typhoid injections had begun, but polio, measles, mumps, rubella, pneumococcal pneumonia, spinal meningitis, all of these immunizations didn't happen until the last half of the 20th century. So some of this would have come anyway, and certainly humanitarian efforts. And I know and have friends, physicians, who even during the years before Castro died, 
were making medical missionaries to rural Cuba because a lot of people didn't have health care. They didn't have medications, even though things had improved. But, of course, when you run an economy as a dictator with everything centralized, you're much more susceptible to the ups and downs. I think the best example of that is when IBM was saying, we need supercomputers and then everybody can have their own little their own little user workstation that runs off of a supercomputer and Bill Gates and and Jobs and Wozniak and Allen, these four guys were saying, No, 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 no. Everybody has to have their own freestanding computer and we'll get them to talk to each other. That way if one breaks down, you still got a hundred million left that are running. And we can share information back and forth. It doesn't necessarily have to be censored and it hasn't been for the most part and it makes it much more difficult to censor information and communication if everybody has their own independent little desktop computer or laptop or iPad or whatever so there are some positives to centralized government in that it can enforce certain actions certain implementations for the good of the people but it also opens up as we know a lot of abuse a lot of abuse the potential is unbelievable and human nature being what it is most people if they have absolute power they will absolutely do what they want I think the best example of that is to look at the Clintons I mean these people think that they can do whatever they want and get away with it and they pretty much have because of the positions they've worked themselves into. Now, we did try to re-implement a friendlier government with the Bay of Pigs invasion, but our then-president, who's been turned into a saint, Saint Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, backed down at the last minute, didn't have the guts to go through with what he said he was going to do, which was to aid and assist this group of militants who were leaving from Florida to go to Cuba to stage an invasion and take back over the government. And they were to have certain support from the United States, air support, so on and so forth, which Kennedy at the last minute decided he wasn't interested in. Of course, this put a big strain on relationships as if they weren't already bad enough. And the Cubans under Castro, took more liberties to seize more U.S. property in Cuba. And then this continued on in the early 60s. And I think it was 62 or 63 that we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the situation here was that the Russians and the United States were locked in the Cold War. And the Russians, the Soviet Union, realized that there's no way it, it could match the United States in, in guns and weaponry and tactics and equipment and technology. It just couldn't do that. And it was looking for ways to put pressure on the United States and to make the Russians, the Soviet Union, feel more secure about their position in the world versus the United States. And so Khrushchev and Castro had formed a close relationship. 
and Khrushchev pushed Castro to allow him to put nuclear weapons on top of missiles in Cuba, which could easily strike a number of places in the United States. And we said, no, you can't do that. you got to take them out. And we embargoed all ships coming into Cuba, including Russian ships. We wouldn't let them come in. And the battle heated up, the battle of words, the, the stare down across the Atlantic between Khrushchev and Kennedy. And Kennedy blinked. And Khrushchev said, well, you get your missiles out of Turkey, you get your missiles out of Italy, and we'll take ours out of Cuba. And Kennedy blinked, and he backed down, and he said, okay. And the R Russians would have never gone to war with us at that time. And Khrushchev, in fact, lost his job a year or two later. He was replaced. The Politburo, the Central Committee, came to him and said, Nikita, <laughs> You almost got us in a nuclear war with the United States. That would have been the end of us. And we love you, and we need you, but you're going to your villa down in the Crimea and keep your mouth shut. And you can read about this if you read his biography written by his son. That's Nikita Khrushchev's son. I forget his son's name. I've read part of it. Fascinating. By the way, Nikita didn't have much education and yet he became one of the most powerful men in the world. I don't think he had a high school education. I'm not sure. I think Gorbachev was the first Soviet leader that actually had a college degree. Be that as it may, this put Cuba in a very bad situation because now they looked really stupid, the United States, and really weak, and they were worried that we were going to invade them. And, of course, that kind of xenophobia gives more power to the central government, and Castro gripped even tighter. The relationships with the Soviet Union had cooled somewhat, obviously, because they weren't interested in some pipsqueak little island country in the Caribbean pulling them into World War III with nuclear weapons. However, they continued to support the Castro regime, and Castro had even gone to Moscow and had negotiated trade agreements uh, for in return for money and supplies that the Cubans needed. He would give the Russians sugar and, and fiber from hemp and different items that the Russians coveted and wanted and needed, raw materials, cigars, whatever. And so their relationship economically remained close. And Khrushchev was gone, and he was replaced, I think, by, oh gosh, who replaced Khrushchev? I can't remember. If anybody remembers that, give me a call. I think it was Brezhnev, but at any rate, the new Soviet regime was less friendly to Castro. And then complicating all of this, there was the assassination of John Kennedy, in 63, 64, Castro was concerned that he would be blamed because rumors had circulated that Castro wanted to kill Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs and especially after the missile crisis. Of course, Castro didn't do it, and he thought it was some right-wing conspiracy.
And so all the finger pointing started. As best we can tell, it was just some crazy guy named Lee Harvey Oswald, even though there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Both houses of the Congress have looked at this several times. Uh, Independent examiners, uh, audio specialists, so on and so forth. Everybody comes back who has any real credibility, any scientific data or deep investigation that this was one crazy guy named Lee Lee Harvey Oswald. And Castro, as a new world leader, started calling for global revolution to get rid of capitalism and imperialism. And of course, imperialism in his eyes was the, or the embodiment of it was the United States. And he found a lot of sympathetic allies like Venezuela, countries in Central America, Algeria, and remember that North Africa, Algeria and Morocco and Libya, these were all French provinces for a few hundred years. In fact, French is still spoken widely in, in North Africa. I have a young man in the office from Morocco, nice guy, Mo, and he is fluent in Spanish. Well, not Spanish, French, a little bit of Spanish, and of course Arabic because Arabic is the language of Northern Africa. But his French is fluent, and it's the language that is spoken almost as much as Arabic in parts of Morocco. So Castro continued to stir up the pot around the world. We all remember that, those of my generation. And this continued to strain his relationship with the USSR, which was now under, I was right, it was Brezhnev. In asserting Cuba's independence, Castro refused to sign the treaty on the non-proliferation, non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, declaring it a Soviet-US attempt to dominate the third world. So here he is, now he's alienating his second big backer, which is the Soviet Union. However, they continued to support him. And he thought that the Soviet Union was diverting from their true Marxist communist doctrine and that they were being led into gradually into capitalism by the evil Americans and the Westerners. And perhaps he was right. Maybe we are evil. Looks like they're better off to me, but that's just my limited opinion. I'm going to be back in a few minutes, and I'm going to answer this question for you. How did he hold on to power? I'm talking about Castro this morning. As you all know, he died recently. Let's all grab a cup of joe, hit the head, be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The Internet is a big deal in the opening weekend of the holiday shopping season, experts say. Adobe, which tracks online retail transactions, says consumers spent $3.3 billion shopping online just on Friday. That's a 22% increase from the same day last year. Indonesian anti-terror squads say they have foiled planned attacks around the capital, including the Myanmar embassy, 
Authorities say two terrorists who were planning the attacks have been arrested. The Hawaii Air National Guard says search and recovery efforts have produced no sign of an airman who went missing days ago during a nighttime swim off a beach at Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. And L.L. Bean says the demand continues to surge for its iconic boot, and the Maine-based outdoor retailer is leasing a new 110,000-square-foot building to increase production. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of Can Care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. Captain Matt here from my friends at Continental Wholesale Diamonds. Andy had a very successful buying trip to Israel recently and returned with some sensational diamonds for his customers at Continental Wholesale Diamonds. When others talk about buying trips, it's usually in New York or L.A., not Tel Aviv. That's where Andy goes. So stop in and see the gorgeous selection of diamonds, all of them priced at wholesale to the consumer. Continental Wholesale Diamonds is located at 1715 Northwest Shore across from Roos Chris Steakhouse in the West Shore Center or online at ContinentalWholesaleDiamonds.com. Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by, making minimum payments? You should know. The credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out. Credit card companies would rather you didn't know that there are ways you can become debt-free and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. There are debt relief programs that help people like you escape overwhelming credit card debt. National Debt Relief has helped tens of thousands of people just like you reduce more than $500 million of debt. National Debt Relief has helped so many people, they're A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau. You don't have to declare bankruptcy or take out a consolidation. Loan. You have the right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a large portion of your debt now. Call National Debt Relief at 800-518-4020. 800-518-4020. Plenty of sunshine and pleasant for your Sunday. High 80 tonight. A starlit sky, low 63. Patchy clouds mixing with sun to begin the work week. Tomorrow, high 81. Tomorrow night, low 67. More sun than clouds Tuesday, high 83. Wednesday, turning cloudy and mild, high 84. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Chuck Ellis for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back in that Santana's Game of Love with Michelle Branch singing. 
wondering where her man has gone, saying she'll do whatever it takes, and she's chasing him down. And we all know that old love story of one partner is interested and the other one's not. Uh-oh. And there starts the chase. But we're talking about Castro this morning, and everybody's wondering how on earth did this guy hold on to his position for such an extended period of time, especially in a world that was changing rapidly towards a free market. And Walter Lippmann in Newsweek in 64 noted that the greatest threat presented by Castro's Cuba is an example to other Latin American states, which are beset by poverty, corruption, feudalism, and plutocratic exploitation. His influence in Latin America might be overwhelming and irresistible if, with Soviet help, he could establish in Cuba a communist utopia. Of course, he didn't, but that that promise and that ideal and just enough progression for the most poor people in, in Cuba gave him the ability to hang on to his position for, what, half a century. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, he started to criticize his next patron, which was the Soviet Union. And he... Uh, warmed up to Mao and the communist Chinese. Well, as we know now, Russia and China have been enemies off and on for eons, fighting over Siberia and domination of Asia. And these things go back and forth, and Castro is insinuating himself into the middle of these regional battles, which gave him a great deal of publicity and exposure around the world. And for a small country like Cuba that had lived in the shadow of first Spain and, and then the United States, he was seen as larger than life. He was seen as a really huge figure, and he commanded respect from a lot of third world countries, and he involved himself in a lot of revolutions as in Angola and, and Algeria and different parts of the world. He even set up training camps for dissidents, leftists, regardless of where they were from, Viet Cong, Angolian freedom fighters, even Black Panthers from the United States were invited down. And remember that a lot of the civil rights movement of the 20th century was wrapped around the ideology of Dubois, and Dubois was a black American activist who was pushing for civil rights and equality for black Americans, a good thing. But he was also a card-carrying communist. And his philosophy was that the only way that justice could be obtained for black Americans who had suffered the cruelty of slavery was to have a redistribution of wealth by a Marxist state. And Dubois eventually left the United States, and I think he ended up in Algeria and lived out his life there, which was a socialist communist country at that time. Castro involved himself in the wars in the Horn of Africa. After the fall of Haile Selassie in Ethiopia, the Somalians came in and the Ethiopians were morphing into a socialist state, 
That's before the Muslim movement came along, a decade or two later. And Castro sent troops to help the Ethiopians, and they beat the Somalians back. And the Ethiopians are somewhat settled now, whereas Somalia is still in chaos. And in 1971, Castro went to Chile, where he visited then-Marxist President Allende, or Allende, as you would say it in Spanish. Allende was a university kind of guy, you know, dressed nice and upper-class family and all that. So he had become the left-wing leader, and a year or two later, Pinochet and the military overthrew him, killed him killed all of his supporters, and ended up taking over. And actually, Chile, under Pinochet, was the first South American country to become a first world country. Thriving economy, he strengthened relationships with the United States. The standard of living is much higher than almost any other country in the South American continent. But this looked good for Castro at home. He looked like he was fighting for the little guy. He did the same thing all over the world. He insinuated himself into the civil war in Angola and helped the rebels push the South Africans back. I think eventually it went the other way. But, you know, these things, for people who feel disenfranchised, look like big deals. And this is how he held on. He also ended up backing the Muslims over Israel in the Yom Kippur War in 1973 because he thought that Israel was a client state of the United States. And so he became a hero in the Arab world. And, of course, they had their up years when the price of sugar went up the economy in in Cuba got better. When it went down, the economy in Cuba tanked. And we had Cuban-American families who were starting sugar farms here in Florida to try and drive the prices down, not only to make money, but also to hurt the Castro regime. Very complicated, and a lot of players on the field. Well, the economy went up and it went down. It went up and it went down. During the 75 to 79 era, Castro felt that Africa was the weakest link in the imperial chain, and so he wanted to stir up trouble there. And that's when he insinuated himself into the Angola Civil War, into the Horn of Africa's battles, the Ethio-Somali War on the Horn, The Horn is the eastern part of Africa, north-central Africa that juts out towards the Red Sea. He became involved in the Conference of Non-Aligned Nation Movement, the NAM, and he had meetings in Havana. He emphasized sports and put a lot of time, money, and effort into his sporting team so that He can compete on the world stage. 
and he was criticized by people that wanted to have better relationships with him, including our president, Jimmy Carter, Canadian prime minister, prime minister, Pierre Trudeau. By the way, his son is now the prime minister and his son praised Castro after his death yesterday. His relationships declined with China because he accused Deng, the new ruler, after Mao died, of betraying their revolutionary principles by initiating trade links with us. Remember, Nixon went over and established an opening of relationships between China and the United States after Mao died in the 70s. By the way, we're still living in Nixon's world. Our blue jeans and all of our goods are so cheap. And you say, well, yeah, but it's been at the cost of American jobs to a certain extent. But also remember that if we bring a lot of these jobs home, it's going to cost more. It costs more to do almost anything and everything in the United States except for health care, which is the thing that the world thinks is the most expensive here, which it is not. If you get the self-pay rate, it's cheaper than anywhere. However, Castro has gone around the world, and he's gotten the three major powers upset with him. First, the United States, then the Russians, and then the Chinese. And by the 1980s, Cuba's economy was again in the tank. Sugar fell. Hurricanes, different problems, natural disasters affected the crops. And they even sent unemployed youths out to other countries because there wasn't any work. Sent them to eastern Germany to work. And desperate for money, the Cuban government started selling off its national artifacts and illicitly traded for electronic goods through Panama. More Cubans fled to Florida. And in one incident, 10,000 Cubans stormed the Peruvian embassy requesting asylum. And so the U.S. agreed that it would accept 3,500 refugees. Castro conceded that those who wanted to leave could do so, but from the Muriel port only. Hundreds of boats from the United States, the Muriel boat lift began, and a mass exodus of 120,000 Cubans ensued into Florida. Oh, by the way, he emptied his prisons and his mental institutions and put them on the boat lifts to the United States, too. And people say, oh, that's not true. He didn't do that. I took care of some of these people in the hospital. I took care of them. And I'd ask the family, what's the, what's the history here? What's the story? Well, he was in a mental institution, and Castro put him on the Muriel boat lift, and so he's here. Well, how's he getting by? Oh, well, he's on Medicaid and Medicare and disability. I don't think it had a great economic impact on the United States and probably more positive because we probably got a lot of the cream of the crop that came from Cuba. Certainly there was a, a brain drain after he took over, which makes it hard to get ahead. And anybody who's going to work hard and have some intelligence and be able to put it to some kind of productive and creative use 
perhaps won't be rewarded in a system like that. And then again in 81, he appealed to the xenophobia of the Cubans, and he said that the United States was guilty of biological warfare against Cuba by orchestrating a, a dengue fever epidemic. Give me a break. That's endemic. And I don't know how you would do that anyway. You would have to infect hundreds of millions of insects, of, of mosquitoes, and let them loose in, in, in Cuba. I mean, it's just not scientifically feasible to do that. You cannot do that. You can disseminate, you can use weapons like anthrax because you don't need a vector. You don't need a, a mosquito to bite you to get the disease. You don't need a dog to bite you to get the rabies. You can just spray the spores all over the place and people will inhale them and and the spores will hatch into the into the uh, organism and that will take over. And, of course, the United States and Great Britain being mother and son. Castro took the Argentinian side in the Falkland Wars in 1982, those of you who remember, and those of you who forgot, in 1982, the right-wing military junta in Argentina waged a war against Great Britain to take back what they considered their islands, the Falklands, which are off the coast of Argentina. And Castro supported the Argentinians. He also helped prop up communist regimes in Grenada in 1979. He backed Chavez when he ran for and got the presidency in Venezuela. Chavez was a Marxist-Leninist. He made a deal with the Venezuelans. He sent over fifteen to 30,000 health care personnel, and in return he got cheap oil. Venezuela's one of the big world producers of oil. And we all remember Grenada when then-President Reagan sent troops in and there were Cubans fighting with the Grenadians or probably doing most of the fighting. And we kicked them all out. And, of course, Castro said this was a reactionary extremist clique who were waging an open warmongering and fascist foreign policy and, of course, directed at the people of Cuba. And Castro feared a U.S. invasion of Nicaragua and sent people to train the Sandinista in guerrilla warfare. Eventually, the right wing defeated the Sandinista, although I think that Daniel Ortega, who was their leader at that time, recently ran for president again of, of Nicaragua. Well, I guess he's had some experience since he was in power for a while there. Now, once Gorbachev came in in 1985, and he was the Russian premier who ended the Soviet Union and ended formally ended communism and opened the doors to the free market and freedom of speech, freedom of press, whatever, he implemented measures to increase freedom of of press, glasnost, economic decentralization, perestroika, and an attempt to strengthen socialism. 
And like many Orthodox Marxist critics, Castro feared that the reformers would weaken the socialist state and allow capitalist elements, that is, the United States and the Western world, to regain control. I don't know how anybody can say they can have control of Russia. The Russians are in control of Russia. Nobody else. Castro ignored Gorbachev's and the rest of the world's call for liberalization, and he clamped down even more on dissidents in the 1980s in the military, and he purged his military. He executed a lot of people. He booted people out, put people in prison. And his involvement all over the world was not really winning him any economic benefits. The Sandinista were defeated in 1990, and we know that Grenada was cleansed of the communists by Reagan in the 80s. All of this continued to add up to more problems for someone who was an ideologue. i got to tell you this, by the way. I was arguing with Cedric at the dinner table in, in 07 in the lunchroom. And Cedric said, oh, Obama's not an ideologue. He's a politician. I said, no, no, Cedric, he's an ideologue. He wants a socialist country. He wants a pacifist country. He wants an internationalist country. He is an ideologue. He said, oh, no, you're wrong, Bill. You'll see. Uh, excuse me, hello, I was right, Cedric. Well, he continued to have favorable trade agreements until the 1990s with the Russians. They had put up with him as long as they could, and they had their own problems after the fall of the, uh, the communist empire. And so people were literally starving in, in Cuba. They were burning firewood for cooking in Electricity was cut, uh, and you'd have maybe six or eight hours a day that you could use your electricity. He admitted that it was the worst situation that they had faced short of open war, and that the country might have to resort to subsistence farming. Uh, I think we've heard this before. Remember the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia after we walked out of Vietnam and left the mess in Southeast Asia? You remember that? And the Cambodians, the Khmer Rouge, drove everybody out into the, out of the cities into the country and made them subsistence farmers. And by the way, killed about a third of their own population for no reason, really. I mean, killed them because they couldn't get up and go to work that day. They were too sick. Chopped their head off. Made their own children chop their heads off. So in the 90s, there was widespread malnutrition, lack of basic goods, and this prompted medical and social missionaries to go to Cuba and try and help them out, and I've had friends that did that. And discussed with them what they saw, and they said, you know, these people are so poor, they're so uh, in need of anything and everything, and I would give expired medications from the office to them to take down there and use. A lot of the expiration dates are, are just nonsense. Just utter nonsense. So, 
Castro continued on. He began to liberalize a little bit, but not much. He finally stepped down, and we know the story for the past 10 years. His brother took over. We've seen very little of him, and now he's gone, and that's the end of that. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Come back next week. I'll be here with you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.